you're listening to the Dirt Pass Sermon Podcast, the podcast for the Ravenna Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor Jason Barnett, aka the Dirt Path Pastor, and my team and I strive to share the message of God's Word with you, seasoned with grace, laced with truth, and applying to your everyday life. Introduction to this sermon, I mentioned the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And there are so many parts to this, to the genealogy of Jesus, and every one of the people listed has a unique story that ties in to the story of Jesus. And that's what's beautiful, because even now, through faith in Him, our stories now are linked with the story of Jesus. Our story is linked to the apostles who's linked to the story of Jesus. It's incredible. And the lady we're going to look at in our sermon today, and actually the next two sermons, has an incredible story. And and it's kind of how faith meets the messiness of life. Well, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 2. I apologize, I had slides, but I never uploaded them on the computer for Shannon. So we're going to kick it old school today. Is that all right? I guess it kind of has to be done. (laughs) But as you're turning to Joshua chapter 2, I'm going to kind of direct our attention to the the Gospel of Matthew for just a minute. And the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew, the apostle, right, that was sitting in the the tax collector booth, and Jesus comes along and calls him out, is the one that writes this Gospel. And his intent behind writing this is he's wanting to establish Jesus as the rightful king, the rightful heir to David's throne over God's people. And to do that, you need to prove it through genealogy. So he starts off chapter 1 with this big, long list of names. Are there any team Bible quizzers in here who had to do the book of Matthew? Now, I remember my, my, my younger brother, Travis, he was actually his senior year. He was the number one Bible quizzer in North America. Yeah, he was really good. I was the opposite. I just jumped because I didn't want to just sit there. No. But I remember it was so amazing to watch because they would get asked one of those genealogy questions, and if you jump before they finished the question, you had to finish the question and give the answer. And those teen quizzes, including my brother, they could quote that entire genealogy in 30 seconds. I don't know how he did it. But 
one of the things that I find interesting about the genealogy of Jesus is, if you look at it, there are people included in Jesus' genealogy that we would try and exclude from ours. Right? When we're talking to people about our families, we'll talk to you about parts of them, but there's parts of them like, I don't want them to know we're related. But the, Matthew points those out. And through, there's three women on that list in particular, right? If you, if you look through the genealogy in Matthew 1, you'll see that, that when it talks about Solomon being the son of King David, it says Solomon was the son of David through Uriah's wife, right? It, it doesn't men- even mention her by name, but we know that's Bathsheba. And that relationship resulted out of sin. That's not something you would want in your family report, but it was there. Now, if you go back to like verse, I think it's verse 2 or verse 3, it says that that, that Judah gives birth to Perez and Zerah, these two twins. And that comes through Tamar, another woman. Well, Tamar, actually, she she was supposed to be getting taken care of by her father-in-law because she had married two of his other sons and each one of them had died. Not wanting to, and that was kind of how the culture worked. When one brother died, the other brother would take the other one's wife to make sure they're cared for. But when it came time for a third son, Judah was kind of like, I'm not giving another one of my sons to this lady because something bad keeps happening every time. And so Tamar is kind of left down the dirt. So she has to conjure up this scheme where she dresses up like a prostitute. And that's kind of how her and Judah have, have that relationship. She's disguised as a prostitute, and she sleeps with her father-in-law. That's not a scandal like we want in our family tree, is it? That's what's in Jesus's. And then there's another woman mentioned in verse five, and her name's Rahab, and she almost goes unnoticed. We almost forget who she is. But Rahab is a woman of great importance to the nation of Israel. If you go back, you have to go all the way back to the book of Joshua here. To add, when the Israelites as a nation, they, they, God's led them out of Egypt. Now they're at the doorstep about to enter the promised land. And that's when Rahab comes on the scene when they need help the most. So... Rahab is going to be the subject of our sermon today. She's actually going to be a subject of a short series that we're doing here over the next couple of weeks. And what's interesting about Rahab's story is that her, her story is a, a story of faith, but when faith meets the messiness of life. So that's what we're going to look at today in Joshua 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies saying, Go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left, and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. So then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, yes, the men did come to me. 
but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But you see, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as they left to pursue them, the city gate was shut. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family, because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them. And save us from death. The man answered her, We will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I haven't been running recently, so I'm a little winded after reading all that. But understand, this mission that these two spies are being sent on is risky. right? They're they're being sent ahead of God's people into the promised land to scope it out, to bring back a report to Joshua so they knew what they were going to encounter as they began this journey to to take possession of the promised land. What's interesting about that is we we know God's already assured Moses and Joshua that they are going to take possession of the land of Israel, that they're going to take possession of this promised land, but you know... Even then, even with that promise and assurance, you know, Joshua still sends out spies. They still do their due diligence to prepare for that moment when it arrives. They still put the work in to get ready. They have God's promises of victory, but they don't sit there and say, well, God's got it all figured out. We're just going to go. No, they, they sit down and they figure out, okay, this is what we're going to encounter. We're going to make sure we're prepared doing our end for when God moves on our behalf. So these spies were sent there to scout out Jericho. Now, if you're trying to get information and you want to blend in, it makes a lot of sense to go where the spies go. They go to Rahab's house, the prostitute. Think about it. A prostitute's house, there are going to be all kinds of, of people going in and out those doors. So if you want to blend in and you want to sneak in somewhere unnoticed with with very little questions being asked of you, and also kind of be able to get some information from the talk that's going on around the area, that's where you're going to go. This was a good cover for the Israelite spies. Because the public would see them go in there and they would think they're there for one thing. That's not why they were there. They were there to scout the land out. It's a good cover. 
If there's anything that a good spy needs, they need good cover. Now, the spies show up, they're at Rahab's house. And just like the government seems to always figure it out, they figure out that there's somebody here that we don't want here. Right? There, there, there's people here that are spying on us, and we gotta, we got to bring them in. The, the king of Jericho and the, and, and, and the people of that land, they had heard these stories of the Israelites and what God had done on their behalf, and they did not want to be next in line. So God, or so Jer- the, the king of Jericho gets a couple of his officials and says, Hey, I want you to go to Rahab's house and ask her, do you, do, do, Have you seen these two men? That's what the government does, right? When they're looking for somebody, they start asking questions. And so the, 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 these guys show up at Rahab's house and they ask her, Hey, um, have you seen these two guys? They wouldn't be from around here. You know, they're, 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 we think they're spies here spying on us and scope us out so that way we can fall like all the other cities around us. This was a moment of choice for Rahab. You realize that? This is a, this is a big decision. Now, Kimai, as a prostitute, you know, she, she's used to trying to protect the identity of her clients. Right? If you want to keep business good and strong, you're not going to go ratting out who's coming to your house. So she's used to that bit of it. But this is something entirely different. Because there's two men there spying out the land, and the government's looking for them. And so this is actually for Rahab, this is kind of, could be a matter of life and death, because she's having to choose between protecting the spies and being obedient to her king. That's the option she has. Now, Rahab chooses to protect the spies. Understand, in in, in this culture, in in this area of the world, hospitality is critically important. I mean, it's important to us too, but not in the same way. But their mindset was that when they had a guest staying with them, they were to protect and provide for them at all costs. That they took it personally that their guests remained safe and secure while they were staying with them. So Rahab has that on her mind. But she also, there's something deeper going on. There's something going on in Rahab's heart and mind that goes beyond just wanting to be a good caregiver. Wanting to be a good host. And so the government shows up at her door. They said, hey, have you seen these two guys? And essentially what she says is, I I saw them. They were here. But they left. They're gone. Hurry up. You might catch them. She lies. She straight up lies to the government. I've tried to search this passage up and down, sideways, around it, trying to figure out some way where I could say to you, she, she wasn't really lying, she's just stretching the truth a little bit, but when you stretch the truth, you're still lying. When you're telling a story and you live out bits and pieces of information, you're still being deceptive. 
Ahab doesn't do any of those things. He just looks those government officials in the eye and says, hey, they were here, but they're gone now. Meanwhile, they're up hiding on the roof. They could probably even hear the conversation taking place. They're hiding up on the roof, and it's called the stalks of flax. And I had to look this up because I didn't know what this was. But apparently they're like these three foot tall like heads of grain, right? And they come in, they would bundle them up and then take them on the roof so they could dry out. And then they would take, take the fibers from those plants and they would use it to make linen. And these bundles were huge. And so if you look at a picture of it, it's very easy if you have a big group of that on the rooftop drying in the sun to hide people under it. And that's where these two men of Israel were, were hiding at. Is a perfect place to hide. So she, she tells the officials, I've seen them, but they're not here no more. If you hurry up, you might catch them. And those spies and the officials hurry off because they think, hey, they're 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 just down the road, so we're gonna go look. So they go off and look, but they're off on a wild goose chase. While the two spies are hiding on the roof. So once the coast is clear, Rahab goes up to the roof where the men are at, and she has a conversation with them. And essentially what she says to him is, look, I have heard all the stories. I heard about how your God brought you out of Egypt. I heard how he brought your people to the Red Sea, and somehow he split it wide open so you could walk on dry land. Me and my people, we've heard the stories of what your people did through your God to those two other kings. And we're terrified. Because we know you guys are coming for us. But Rahab takes a step, goes a step further, though. She hears all these stories, and somehow, in the midst of where she's at, in the midst of her profession, in the midst of lying to the government, somehow she pieces together that the God of these Israelite spies, of this Israelite nation, is the one true God. And she says as much to him. She says, your God is the one true God. He's, he's the God of heaven, and he's the God of earth. He rules over all of it. She recognizes that, you know, if she wants to survive and she wants her family to survive, then they, they better get on God's side. Because if they're on the other side, it doesn't matter who their earthly king is, because when they go up against God, they're not going to be able to stand. Rahab believed it was more important to be loyal to God, this God that she barely understood knew, this God that she had only heard about through rumors and stories, she said it was better to be loyal to him than her own king. And so she goes to the mission and says, look, listen, I know at some point you're going to show up here and this city is going to fall. Because your God's with you. Promise me that, you'll, that me and my family will be safe. She's, she's, she's doing this to, she, because she's found, she, has, she believes that God is the one true God, and she knows that the only way to be safe 
is by her throwing herself on his side. And the only way that she can be sure that she's on her side is if God's people make a deal with her. If God's people see the kindness that she's offering. If God's people notice that her heart is trying to help them achieve what God wants them to achieve, she knows her and her family will be safe. And so the Israelite spies look at the woman and say, hey, because of this kindness you showed us, our lives are, if our lives are secure, your lives will be secure. All right, so where am I going with this? Well, first off, we know from the genealogy of Matthew that this, is, this, this Rahab is later going to marry a Jewish man. She starts off in this story as a prostitute. Some scholars will try and argue that she's an innkeeper, but if you read the story here, there's no way. If you read the professions of the other apostles later, there's no way. But yet somehow, this Rahab finds herself in the genealogy of Jesus. And as a matter of fact, this is the same Rahab that when you turn to the book of Hebrews, to the hall of faith, right? That chapter 11 that mentions all these great figures of the Bible who had great faith in God, Rahab is right there listed with them. But this is what it says. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. This is what it says about Rahab. It says, By faith Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. Do you notice it does what it mentions here in Hebrews? Do you notice where it's crediting her to the moment of the crisis moment where she decided to place her faith in God? It's not pointing us to verses 9 through 13 where she confesses to those spies that God is the one true God. That, that's, that's a profession publicly to the, to the children of Israel, but that's not the moment that text is pointing to. It's pointing to the moment Rahab let those spies into her house. That was a crisis moment of faith for her. Because she had to decide, am I going to side with God or I'm going to risk everything? Am I going to risk everything to take in these two spies that I've never met? She made the choice to protect the spies, and this is, this is pointing to her actions in verses, two, uh, verses 4 through 7 of two, chapter 2 of Joshua. Her change of mind and change of direction, her repentance happens that moment where she makes that decision to bring those people into her house. She's already wrestled with in her heart. She's already wrestled with them. And in that moment, she decided, I am going to take a chance with God, and I'm going to bring these people in, and then I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to talk to them because just maybe, just maybe they'll find a place for me. And this non-Jewish woman, this non-Jewish prostitute woman, gets adopted into the family of God through faith. We see, there's a big problem when we look at it that way, isn't there? There's a big something we have to wrestle with if we take in that story and we look at it that way, the way the writer of Hebrews is pointing us to look at it. 
Because in that verses 4 through 7, when she goes to protect those spies, what does she do? She straight up lies. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. There's no confusing what she does. She just she is straight up dishonest. But yet, those actions in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, are counted to her as faith. Those actions are attributed to her from God as her moment of faith. What are we to do with that? How does that make sense? Well, first off, let me tell you this before you all get nervous. This is in no way condoning that she lied. God is no way putting a step of approval and saying, it's okay for you to be dishonest and to lie to people. That's not what's being said here. That's not what this is pointing to. That's not what happened. She does lie. I mean, those government officials show up from Jericho and she's like Bugs Bunny and Looney Tunes cartoons. She said they went that way. They were on the roof. To hear this woman in this moment not only is, is commended for her faith in Hebrews 11, but the Apostle James is going to say the same thing. And here's what we have to remember Rahab was not a Jew. She was not a Jew. She was born, she was a woman born in a pagan culture. They didn't worship the one true God. They worshiped a bunch of them. She's raised with pagan beliefs. That's why she had the job that she had. It's perfectly acceptable for her to earn a living through that pagan profession according to that culture. But I assure you, none of that is God giving a stamp of approval to any of it. You see, what God saw in Rahab was a woman in all of her brokenness, in all of her broken understanding, in a messy situation, and a, and a very limited picture of who God was. Look at God and say, I believe in you enough to take this risk. That's all she knew was, was the rumors and the stories. She didn't know the rituals. She didn't know what she was supposed to do. To, 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 she didn't know any of that. Now, I assure you from this point, after, later in, in Rahab's life, when she marries the Jews, I'm sure she becomes well acquainted with God and the ways of God. But that's not where she starts. She starts in this broken moment, in all of her brokenness, in this messiest situation that you could possibly find yourself in. Again, it's not God saying her sin was okay. God's never okay with our sin. But somehow God was able to look into her heart and see the intent of it. See the motivation behind it. And say, that's good enough. We'll start there.
here's what this passage reveals to us about the grace of God. God knows a seeking heart. God knows a seeking heart. Even if it's shrouded in brokenness. God knows. God understands. God doesn't look and see as we see. He looks at us and sees us for who we truly are and knows what what our aim and our intent is. One One of my teachers along the way explained it this way. A little boy loves his mom, right? And he wants to pick flowers for her. But he didn't have any money. So where does he go? He goes to mom's garden. Finds her prized flower bed over there and picks the prettiest one out. But he pulls it all up from the ground, stump and root and all, right? The mud's dripping off of it. He goes, to the, he goes inside the house and he walks across mom's freshly mopped kitchen floor. You ever done that, fellas? You do it once. <laughs> walks across mom's kitchen floor. Meanwhile, and, you know, clumps of dirt falling onto that tile. He walks across the freshly, the freshly cleaned white carpet, still carrying that rose, dripping the dirt all into it. Then it gets smashed in and he looks at mom and says, Mom, I picked this for you. He did absolutely everything wrong that you could possibly do wrong. But do you get mad at that little boy in that moment? You might. But somewhere along the way, we stop ourselves, and you see what? He did that with the best of intentions. That was a heart full of love. That was a heart seeking something beyond what was happening in the moment. He was doing something nice and out of love based on what he understood and what he knew, and that was enough. And that's what Rahab was doing. And God looked at her and said, that's enough. It's really really the same story as the thief on the cross next to Jesus. That man's not hanging on that cross next to Jesus because he's innocent. He's there because he committed a crime. A crime that the Romans deemed dead. You can die for that one. I don't know what the list of charges that the Romans deemed worthy of dying over, but I have a feeling it was quite long. He's not hanging on that cross because of some injustice that the government has carried out against him. He belongs on that cross. He's not not wandered with Jesus and heard all Jesus' teachings. If he's a Jewish man, he may have some understanding of the Scriptures, but not what the disciples have at this point. Yet somehow in that moment, hanging on the cross, he looks at Jesus and realizes there's something different about Jesus compared to me. I don't know what it is, but I believe. He may not, and he, in that moment, he believed, did he have it all figured out? Absolutely not. But guess what? Jesus tells us, in a minute, you're going to be with me in paradise. And I'll explain it to you when we get there. That moment of faith was enough. The man and Rahab both made the choice that mattered most. They chose believing in God. Their lives were messy at those moments, but not so messy that God couldn't look past the mess and see the heart of what was really happening. That doesn't mean there's not growth that needs to occur, right? We've talked. To, I preached about this last week, right? If you weren't here, you can go listen to it. If not, I'll I'll, t- I'll tell it to you a little bit right here, okay? But basically, I talk about you know, 
believing in Jesus is everything. That changes everything. That's the starting point. But you have to get to the starting point. You can't get to the other stuff without the starting point. And that starting point is faith in Jesus. And that's enough to get you there. Their motive mattered most. And God's grace was more than sufficient to make up the rest. Do you realize that about the grace of God? You see, God's grace, it's, it's, it, you know, we talk about how it, God's grace takes our sins away. But do you realize God's grace also takes the sins away that we don't even know are sins? The ones we don't even know about. Jesus' blood provided forgiveness for those until once we realize what they are. Yes, then we've got to confess them. Then we've got to deal with them. But God's not going to hold us. He's not going to judge us based on what we don't know. But to make sure that we were right with God, he paid that price for us. We as Nazarenes call that, call that God's provenient grace, the grace that goes before. God's breadcrumbs of grace. See, repentance starts with a change of mind and then a step of faith. That's it. That's it. Those are the only steps that God requires of us. He, re- he requires us to repent, but repentance, all it is, is realizing that God is God and I am not. That God's way is the way I need to be going, not my own way. And all we have to do is change your mind, accept that by faith in Jesus, and then take a step toward him. And that is it. That is all that you need to be saved. And somehow, through it all, Rahab figures it out. I can't help but think of the line where Jesus... Oh, I can't remember who he's dealing with exactly. Oh, it's the centurion. Remember? Jesus wants to go to his house and heal, heal someone there. And the centurion looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, I'm an unclean man. You're not, I'm not worthy to have you in my house. I'm not worthy of that. But just like I'm a man of authority, so are you. And all you have to do is say the word, my servant will be healed. And what does, do you remember what Jesus says to that centurion? Essentially, he says, I wish the Israelites had this kind of faith. That is a choice for each of us. In the messiness of my life, in all of my brokenness, all of my lack of understanding and narrow vision, and I believe that Jesus is Jesus. Take a step toward him. Knowing that it's the start of something, but it's everything. Can I believe in Jesus and take a step toward him?
I don't know where you're at in your life. But I want you to know that you're not too broken for Jesus to help you. You're not too broken for Jesus to redeem you. Your sin is not greater than the blood of Jesus. Believe in Jesus and take a step of faith toward him. Grace and peace to you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Burt Passman Podcast. It was recorded live at the Ravenna Church of the Nazarene, located at 530 Main Street in Ravenna, Kentucky. You can learn more about the Ravenna Church of the Nazarene by visiting ravnaz.com. And if you'd like to send me a message, just simply use the link in the show notes. 